If you have a copy of the scriptures, I would invite you to look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. Some have said this is uh, arguably one of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament. That may come as a surprise or a shock to you, but we're looking at a really pivotal passage in understanding the entire Bible this morning. So basically I'm saying our job's pretty easy today to do justice to this. Yeah, sarcastically, no way, no way. No way, but I hope you will get just through the reading of it, of the force of how powerful this chapter is. Uh, before I read before you Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, I want to remind you that God has a vision for the good of humanity. So if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity or thinking about Christianity, or, or if you're here and you believe for a long time and you've forgotten, God has a vision for the good of all humanity. And he's written, us to, he's written to us in the book called the Bible. And it has four parts to it. And understanding God's good vision for humanity means that he answers the question of where do we come from? What in the world is wrong with the world? How is it fixed? And where are we going? And God's word answers all of that through the four-part story. And we're learning together that God punctuates that four-part story with five statements. So if you want to think about creation and rebellion and redemption in Jesus and the reconciliation and restoration of all things, also know that these five statements will help you understand that four-part story, that vision that God has for the good of humanity. Here's statement number one of five. God has always had a people. He's always been building his church. From Genesis to the end. Two, evil is real. Evil is real. But what? It never gets the last word. The way God has ordered the world, he says evil never gets the last word. Three, grace. From beginning to end of the Bible, you will find grace. God initiates, pursues, and saves. Four, he did it. Jesus actually accomplished something through his life and death and resurrection. He is a literal, real savior. He actually saves people like you and me. And finally, everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything in history, everything in your life, everything in the Bible, everything is moving toward Jesus. So with that said, hopefully that's something of review for you if you've been here for a little while, but hopefully it's getting down in. I'm going to read some sections from 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read the first 18 verses. Listen to this. It's God's word. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall, you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, 
from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Would you pray with me? Lord, here we are again. Your people gather together because we need you. We need to know about you. We need you to speak into our lives. We've all been busy this past week and we've had ups and downs. And we're here, Lord, because we're learning that you love us, that you care for us, that you speak to us, that you help explain what's going on, and that you promise to be with us. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would enable us to hear, that you would give us power to follow, that you would draw us close to Jesus. And that in seeing you, Jesus, and beholding you, we would understand what you have done for us. We would understand what your life and death and resurrection mean so that our lives this week might reflect that what you have done has changed us. As always, Lord, do whatever you want. Have your way with us. We make our prayer through the name of Jesus, through his blood, through his sacrifice for us, through the power of his resurrection, through his current reign, we present all this to you. Amen. This morning, we're going to talk about disinterested obedience. That is an obedience in which self-interest has been eliminated. The story that we read together this morning starts with talking about this king named David. Do you remember this guy, David? Do you remember his kingship? You might remember that David grew up about six miles away from Jerusalem in a little place called Bethlehem. It was there that he learned how to tend sheep. It was there that he learned to work with his dad. He was the youngest of a bunch of brothers. And it was there that God began to pursue him even at an early age. And let's not forget that David becoming king of Israel is quite significant 
because the characteristics that David displays in his life are not the typical characteristics that we would want in a leader. David was not bullheaded. He didn't always think that he was right. Matter of fact, the people of God prior to David decided that they wanted to um, find a king that was really attractive, handsome, tall, imposing, who was forceful, who had an agenda. That's the kind of king that God's people wanted, and he gave it to them, and it didn't go so well. So here we have David on the throne. Here we have a, a, a young guy who grew up six miles away from Center City. And here he is. And so far in his reign up to, up to 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is what happened. David has unified the northern and southern kingdom. He has brought them together where there was prior to his reign disunity. He brings unity. Not only that. But David changed the capital city so that now there is like a new life to Jerusalem and Israel. And people are excited about this. And not only that, David has defeated a lot of enemies. Not just the story of Goliath that you've heard about, but more than that. Such that right now when this chapter opens up, God says that he's the one that has given David rest from all of his enemies and his people from their enemies that God has been working in the midst of turmoil. He has been working even though God's people were interested in finding a different kind of king. God was working to bring about his own king. And just in case you think that I have some kind of crush on David, just because I was named after him, it's not so. David was messed up. He wasn't perfect by any stretch. If you read just a couple chapters later, you'll find out he was... Not uh, uh, that he was very capable of um, misappropriating his power and mistreating people because of his position and lying and being an accessory to murder. I just need you to hear me say, God loves to redeem people, especially those that are wildly known for doing atrocious things. Oftentimes those are the very people that God pours his grace upon. Well, David is here king. He's united the kingdom. Oh, did I tell you that he was a songwriter? He had an artistic flair where he likes to write songs. If you want to read some of them, there's this book in the Bible called Psalms. There's 150 songs. He wrote a lot of them about his own experience and his own life his own failings and the faithfulness of God, his struggles with life, struggles with dealing with those who are after him and at times even wanting to kill him. He writes about it. Can you imagine gathering together in ancient Israel if you were David and you were gathered with God's people and you started to worship and they started to sing a song about your life? Can you imagine that? David experienced that over and over. But the most significant thing that happened in David's life up to this point is this. David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's presence for God's people. And David brought it back. And that meant that God was again symbolically at minimum at the center of his people. 
It meant that God's people understood, at least minimalistically, symbolically, that God was the center of their existence and that they could do nothing without him. And God had used David to do all of those things so that God's people would know God's still at work. He's still unfolding his plan in history. David finds rest from his enemies during this season of joy and gladness in his life. And he says, you know what? I live in a great house. I need to build God a house. That's what he's saying in verse 1 and 2. David's so excited about the rest that he's been given. I need to do something for God. David begins to make plans to do something for God, to build God a house. I have this great house, and God is uh, relegated to a tattered tent that's been in existence for, you know, a couple hundred years as people wandered around, and it's been broken down and put back up, and broken down and put back up. God needs something better. So David goes to his pastor, Nathan. He says, Nathan, I want to do something for God. I live in this great house. God needs a house. And Nathan says, sounds great. Do it. Go for it. And then Nathan departed. And during the night, he understood that maybe what he told David in advising him the previous day wasn't the best advice. So he comes back the next day. Did you notice that in the text? The next day he comes back to David and he says, whoa, David, whoa, 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 um, no. You're not to do this. Now it's hard to imagine that David at some level, however small, at some level, must have had some sense of rejection. He must have felt some sense of rejection. He had to have, even if it was small. Here he was making plans to do something great for God, and God ends up saying, no. Well, that's the story. So let's get to the takeaways. Well, the first takeaway is this. Just so you know, verse 5 and verse 7, it's not telling you that God's angry. God is not angry. When David wants to build this for God, and God says in verse 5 and verse 7, did I ask you for this? As I raised up judges prior to the kings, as I was with the judges and brought them along so that you could be rescued when you entered the land because you weren't exactly fulfilling what I said. When, when, when I was with the judges and working through the judges, God is saying, did I ever say to them, how come I don't have a house? No, I never said that. That's what God's saying. He's not angry. He's not frustrated with David. He's trying to get David to think. He's trying to get David to process. He's not upset at David's plans. He's not upset with David's intentions. He just doesn't want David to build him a house. That's the first takeaway. God's not mad. Here's the second one. God is still unfolding the, capital T-H-E, the story. And he takes this moment to make sure that we're right with him as he is unfolding this plan and unfolding what he wants to do and explaining in detail again that the way he set up the world in Genesis 1 and 2 is the way that he wants things to be. And he uses this moment to remind us, to pull us back into the story, to understand that his story is still being revealed 
Let me show you the parts of this story, the big story. Did you notice what God starts off by saying to David? He's like, I, have, I, I, I don't need a house. I, I want to be with my people. Look at verse 6 and 7. He's like, I've been with my people since they came out of Egypt. Like where, wherever they traveled, that's where I went. When, when, they, when, when they left, I was with them. I, I was with them wherever they were going. I want to be with my people. And then God presses that even further into David in verse 8 and 9. David, I want to be with you. Think about your life, David. Do you remember when you were young and you were tending sheep? I was there with you. I'm the one that brought you from being a shepherd into the prince of my people. That's the language that he uses, right? That's what we read. God is saying, I want to be with my people, and that hasn't changed. As a matter of fact, David, I, I, I don't want you to build me a house uh, somewhere around verse 10 or 11, maybe 13. God says, oh, I will have a house. There'll be someone who will come from you, and he will build me a house. Do you remember that guy's name? Solomon. It was one of David's descendants. It came true. God said, no, David, not you, but in time I will have a house. It'll happen. But God says this as well. David, there will come a time in which my people will have a place and there will be enemies no more. All their enemies will be gone. They won't have anyone to bother them anymore. Do you start to see how God is communicating to us that a time is going to come in which all will be peace and made well? Friends, there is a time coming in which you will not have to turn to your neighbor and say, do you know the Lord? A time is coming in which evil will be pulled out by the root, heaven and earth will be reunited, and we will be with God's people, and God will be all in all. That day is coming, and at that point there will be no threat at that point, there will be no disease. There will be no death. The curse will be no more. That day's coming and God's saying, oh, I've got a time coming in which all enemies will be gone forever, that no one's gonna bother my people anymore. God is still unfolding the story. And in telling David that he didn't want David to build him a house, and in reminding him that someone in his line will build God a house, God begins to further explain this whole idea, which we read right here, of kingdom. Oh, David, David, I'm going to have a kingdom. You have a kingdom, David, and it, it, is, it is part of and leading to and pointing to my kingdom. And my kingdom, David, is going to last forever. Look at verse 13 and verse 16. It says it three times in those two verses. God's kingdom is going to be forever and this kingdom is going to come from the line of David. And then if you continue to play that out, look at what God says. God says, in other words, David, there's a play on words here. David, um, you're not gonna build me a house. I'm gonna build you a house. But actually it's like, I'm gonna build you a dynasty. And that is going to be my kingdom. And look at verse 12 and 13. God says, David, guess what? Your death can't nullify this plan. 
After you come and go, David, my kingdom's going to stand. And it's not just that God tells David that his death can't stop it. He goes on to say around verse 14 that your sin can't even stop it. You are going to sin against me, but guess what? I'm going to deal with that too. So that my promises to you in establishing a kingdom, you can't stop it with your death. You can't nullify it with your sin. As a matter of fact, it is going to be forever. Which means that it will outlast the clocks on our wall, phone, everything else. There's a time when time will not exist anymore. It'll just be eternity. Beloved, I hope that you're getting a sense of how significant this passage is. That God takes this moment and he begins to show us that the plan that he has had from the beginning is continuing to unfold and become more and more and more clear. Because the kingdom that God is talking about that lasts forever has a king. And do you know what his name is? I hope you do. His name is Jesus. And do you know what we know about Jesus that's good news for you this morning, both, both personally and for the world at large? Is that he is the answer for our sin. He is the answer for our rebellion. We aren't the answer to our rebellion. Our will is not the answer to our rebellion. The answer to our rebellion and sin is Jesus. And not only is Jesus the answer to sin, but he's the one that actually defeated death. You see, God can say this to David about how David's death can't nullify his plan because Jesus would come from the line of David who would defeat death forever so that we can poke fun at death, so that we can make fun of death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Uh, because the tomb's empty. And not only is Jesus the answer to sin, not only did he defeat death, but beloved, he is going to reign forever and ever and ever. Now please, don't disconnect your life from that good news of Jesus. Don't disconnect your life from God unfolding this plan and you seeing this unfolding in the scripture. Let's go all the way back. So where did it start that God wanted to dwell with his people? Where did that start? The garden. It didn't start with Egypt, right? Well, where, where, where did it start that God's people had a land that they were supposed to live in and have dominion over and um, uh, populate and manage and uh, seek the flourishing? Where did that start? In the garden. God is saying the same thing. And why would God want a people and dwell with the people and tell those people to spread his glory everywhere? Why? Because he wants the whole earth to be filled with his glory. And beloved, our sin can't even stop it. Our rebellion in the garden did not stop God from intending to fulfill everything that he had set up. That's what this passage is saying. That's what this passage means, that God is continuing to unfold his plan. And that ultimately, there would be a savior come from David's line who would be a king, and he would be Jesus. 
You see, God's not angry with David at all. God's just really committed to unfolding the plan of all of history. Here's the third takeaway. Disinterested obedience. So you read this story. It's kind of hard to read this story and not think immediately. So David was intending to do this for God and God said no. Why in the world would God say no? Why would God say no to David? Why would he tell David, uh, no, you're not going to build me a place? Every, I think, I think every scholar I read this week said that this was a moment in David's life, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is what I read, um, that this was the moment in David's life where he started to want to do things for God. Which meant that at the end of the day, when you start living a life of wanting to do things for God, it ends up being that you actually are wanting to do things for yourself. And I liked reading that, and it was intellectually stimulating and, you know, fun to think about and ponder and meditate on. But I actually think what's happening here is that we are understanding what God wants in our lives. And what he wants is disinterested obedience. It's not that obedience is unengaged. It's not that our obedience is uncaring or unintentional. It's that self-interest has been eliminated from our obedience. Do you follow? It's so that our obedience before God is free. So that our obedience with God and walking with him is voluntary. So that we're not trying to do things for God such that whether we realize it or not in the moment, subtly, deep down, we end up thinking I need to do this for God because in some form or fashion, whether we say it or not, verbalize it or not, we get God in our back pocket. That we want to do things for God because if we do things for God, then he'll end up doing more for us. And what God is actually looking for is an obedience that is free, that is voluntary, that is engaged, that cares, that is incredibly intentional, that is committed, that is thoughtful, that is comprehensive. But self-interest has been removed. Do you get it? So let me ask you something. Have you ever made plans and those plans did not turn out the way you thought they would? Plans at work? Plans with your family? Plans with your children? Plans for your children? Uh, plans for your own health and well-being? Plans to go on vacation? Have you ever made a plan in which it didn't turn out the way that you wanted? And have you ever made those plans, not flippantly, with, with the best of intentions, in which you were really thinking about what you were doing and engaged with what you were doing as you were planning, and you were very intentional? Have you ever, with the best of intentions, made plans that not only didn't turn out the way that you wanted, but your plan was actually 
rejected? What did you do? How have you responded in those moments? How have you in your life made plans with the best of intentions? And it's not just that things didn't work out. It's that with the best intentions, your plan was actually rejected. How did you respond? Did you just double down? Did you just get more committed? Did you just feel like, well, I can, I can, I can white-knuckle my way through this one? Did you despair? Did you get really, really angry? Did you think to yourself, well, what am I doing wrong? Because this isn't working out. This is what I planned. Here are my intentions. Everything's good. My intentions are good. Therefore, this should happen. And it doesn't. That there was even a form of rejection. Do you see what's happening here? This is what's happening with David. He's made these plans. He's been intentional about thinking about it. He's thinking about his house. He's thinking about God's house. And he's intentionally trying to do something for God. And God says, no. He rejects it. And what do you do? What have you done in your life when that has happened? Because let me tell you what God is looking for from us. Disinterested obedience. God's not looking for us not to make plans. He's not looking for us to be uh, unintentional. He's not looking for us to do nothing. He wants us to follow him with every fiber of our being as intentionally as we can, planning with great motives behind it. But he's not looking for obedience that has self-interest. He's not looking for obedience that's just how I'm going to get my way. Even if it's 3%. He's looking for disinterested obedience. And the fourth takeaway is we see what God is working into us. So the first takeaway is, is God's not angry. The second is God is unfolding the plan of all of history that centers on Jesus Christ and the good news of what he's done and the fact that he's establishing a kingdom and that happens to be the first words that he spoke. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was coming to build a kingdom that has no end. That to receive him is to be part of that kingdom and to live for that king and to build that kingdom. And God's looking for disinterested obedience. And finally, this is what he's working into us, humility. In other words, when you make plans and things don't turn out like you want, you might get disappointed. You might get frustrated. You might think that you just need to be in more control. And so you try to get more control. And then you just get more angry. And then that plan doesn't work. So you try to have better intentions or more pure intentions, but those aren't working either. And what God is trying to work into us in those moments is humility. David hears from God that God says no. And David hears from God, it's not just that God says no, but David, I am going to bring a king from your line. I'm going to establish your throne forever. And David responds to that in verse 18 by doing what? Sitting down at God's feet. 
David heard these words from God and he sat down. Beloved, sitting down is not in action. Sitting down before God is the place in which we refocus our attention. Sitting at God's feet and being still is where we get to deal with those voices in our head that pop up when everything gets quiet and everything is removed and it's just you sitting down and being still. Those are the moments in which the voices pop up and which argue with you, which try to say, oh, but you should be doing this. You should, look how terrible you are. Look how great you are. It's that time when you get to deal with all those voices, but you get to do it by focusing your attention on God. In which by his grace, you are striving to focus yourself and all that you are on him and what he says and what he has promised to do through Jesus. The time in which we can focus and pay attention and listen to God. So that all those voices that are going on, we can take those right to God and Jesus and the gospel and deal with it and listen and work it out. David sitting here is not in action. It is a time of focus and anticipation of what God will do. If you go on and read the rest of this chapter, what you'll find around verse 19 is that David says, uh, he starts to say verse 18, who am I, Lord, that you have done all this for me? But then he says, not only have you said this to me, you've said this about those who are to come after me. And then he continues on, if you look at verse 19 and says, and what's going to be done and so that all mankind will know. David is processing everything in his life through the reality of what God has just told him. And he's realizing that it didn't just apply to him. It doesn't just apply to those who come after him. It applies to all mankind. And the only way, the only way that you get there is by being still and paying attention to God, intentionally focusing attentiveness on God and who he says he is and what he says he's gonna do. And believe it or not, that is exactly what brings us to the table. 